Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition today as described, uh, if you're looking at the Facebook page, our topic is righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Uh, this is the summary that Luke gives us of what Paul had to say to Felix. We'll be talking about that, but first let me introduce uh, our panelists. As usual, Joe Works, who is in Elmira, New York, is with us, and Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Good afternoon, Joe and Chase. Good afternoon, guys. Good afternoon. So uh, in this passage that we're talking about today, we're just in the history of what's going on in the book of Acts. Paul has come back to Jerusalem after his, what, what I often refer to as his fundraising journey, where he has gathered funds for the needy saints in Jerusalem. And he's come back to Jerusalem and he has gone into the temple and he's been accused of taking a Gentile into the temple with him. And so there's been an uproar, a tumult, and the Jews were beating him. Claudius Lysias, the captain of the guard there, comes down to take control of things, takes Paul into custody. A little bit later on, there's a plot against Paul. And so Claudius Lysias sends Paul to the governor or the procurator to uh, Felix. And Felix takes custody of him. And then, then he's in custody with Felix for a couple of years. And we'll talk about that briefly in just a moment. But first of all, tell us a little bit about Felix, guys. What do we know about him? He was not an honest uh, governor of the land. We understand that. Um, Rome had certain laws that were established to avoid bribery and things like that. But uh, governors, particularly that lived further away, kind of ruled the land as they wanted. And he was one of those that was not known to be honest. Uh, and I think that's even borne out in the text, right? Um, he was hoping to get a bribe from Paul. Uh, so he kept Paul for two years in custody and cons- had Paul come to him all the more often to talk with him, apparently hoping that eventually Paul would come through with some money, right? Yeah. And that, that made me wonder, is that why you keep having me on this program? Now you don't have any money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, it, is, it is kind of interesting, though, uh, to think about why he would think Paul would have money. Paul has come from uh, Macedonia and Achaia, and in that First Corinthians 16, apparently Galatia also had provided funds because he says, as I gave order to the churches of Galatia, so also do you. Uh, so the churches of Macedonia and the churches of Achaia and apparently Galatia had been laying by in store to, to provide money that could be taken to the needy saints in Jerusalem. So Paul has apparently come to Jerusalem with quite a fund, and maybe uh, Felix is aware of this, and this is why he supposes he can get money from Paul. He, he, he even mentioned it to Felix in verse 17. Mm-hmm. Alms to my nation, right? Have, yeah. have alms to my nation. <clears throat> what about uh, Felix's uh, knowledge of Judaism? Some of the people that, that Paul encounters don't know a lot about Judaism, but uh, what about Felix? It was handy for him. Uh, his wife was Jewish, verse 24, Drusilla. Um, uh, and so uh, being a ruler of that land, a governor of that land, it was rather handy for him to have a Jewish wife. Um, uh, she could give him insight into what was going on there. She's a part of the Herodian family, um, and uh, so that, that was, they certainly have a long history with the Jews and with Christians. 
Well, I wish we had a chart that we could kind of show how she was connected to the Herodian family. That would be oh, handy. I, would, I, really would. I wouldn't know anything about a chart, guys. <laughs> wow. That um, was yeah. Quick. So, did you just you do that just now, <laughs> uh, At the bottom right corner of this chart, uh, you'll see the name Drusilla. She's married to Felix. Her siblings are Bernice, that you will read about in chapter 25, and Herod Agrippa II would be her older brother. And her dad was the Agrippa that decapitated James back in Acts 12. Um, and it goes through the entire Herodian dynasty there. So that, that's Drusilla down there. That's how she's connected, in case anyone's curious. So the first part of chapter 24, the Jews have hired this Tertullus to come and present the case against Paul before Felix. And so that man does so. And then Paul has an opportunity to respond, which he does. And then verse 22 says, but Felix, having more exact knowledge concerning the way, the way of Christ, deferred them, saying, when Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I'll determine your matter. So there is an allusion to the fact that Felix had some context here for understanding uh, not only Judaism, but even the way, uh, as Luke often refers to Christianity, right? Exactly. So what we want to focus on is uh, verses 24 and 25, and especially verse 25. So I'll read those two verses. Verse 24, after certain days, Felix came with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned of righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was terrified and answered, go your way for this time, and when I have a convenient season, I will call you unto me. I guess we should get verse 26 also. He hoped with all that money would be given him of Paul, wherefore also he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. So there's the reference to um, Felix's attempt really to extort money from, from Paul. Well, there's some details in there we'll come back to, but let's start in talking about this message. It's long impressed me how Luke sums up, well, how Paul sums up the message that Felix needed to hear, and then Luke sums it up. Um, in these three things, uh, righteousness, self-control, judgment to come. If you often, if you ever have occasion to sit down, I've got one message. I've got an audience. They're not Christians. Uh, what do I say to them? This is not a bad place to start. Righteousness, self-control, judgment to come. Let's start with righteousness. Uh, righteousness is what we don't have, but what we need. Why? Why do we not have righteousness, and why do we need righteousness? We're not right in and of ourselves in the eyes of God. We have sin. There's a passage in the Old Testament, It's and I'm trying to think now. I, I think it's the 103rd Psalm or the 104th Psalm. Let me turn there real quickly, and I'll spot it. And uh, it simply says this, and it's going to be the 103rd Psalm. Um, and no, it's not. It's going to be the 100 and... Uh, well, it says, O Lord, if thou shouldest mark iniquities, who could stand? Uh, I was thinking it was either the 103rd or 104th Psalm, but it's not. Um, I know where it is on my Bible. Let me see if I can spot it real quickly. Uh, you know, while you're doing that, Jeff, I do just, as we're considering these three things that Luke brings out for us, it's one of those things, every time I read Acts 24, I'm like, wow, if I wanted to summarize the gospel message, 
I don't know if those would be the three topics I would say right off the bat, like righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. But they're really succinct and really, I, I think it, it captures the gospel message really well. And so every time we come across this in Acts 24, I'm always impressed by the summary that Luke gives there. Because uh, that really, it, it captures what the gospel is about. So I think it's cool that we're going to spend some time digging into this one. So um, in particular, Chase. we're talking about righteousness right now. Thank you, Chase. Now, it's, it's, well, I was way off. It's the 130th Psalm, and it's verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? This is what we call a rhetorical question, meaning what? Uh, I'm not going to answer that. (laughs) (laughs) A rhetorical question is one you don't need to answer. It's the answer Uh, is is obvious. You're making a point really rather than asking a question. I would like to say real quick, Simon and Teresa Harris commented Psalm 130 verse three. I think it was Teresa though. So go ahead. (laughs) Thank you, Teresa, or possibly Simon. Uh, So the 130 Psalm verse four, Oh Lord, if thou shouldest mark iniquities, who could stand? It is a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer the question because it's self-evident. The idea is here, no one could stand. The question is making the point. If God, if God held against us everything that we've done wrong, none of us could stand before God. None of us are righteous in, in our own right. Uh, that's one of the problems people don't understand. You run into people and you, you try to talk to them about the gospel, and some of the people you talk to, they'll say, well, you know, thanks a lot, but I'm, I'm a good person. I keep the Ten Commandments, right? Have you run into that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, the point they're missing is uh, the point that's made in, in Romans and Galatians. We're not justified by the law. The law ends up condemning us. Even if you just stuck with the Ten Commandments, most of us would end up being condemned at some point by the Ten Commandments. We may generally keep the Ten Commandments. But at some point, we've violated one of those. And you, then you think of all of, of God's will, which is summed up in loving your neighbor and, and loving God, loving God with all your soul, heart, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. All those other laws are intended to teach us how to do that. But each one of us at some time has acted mean-spiritedly, hatefully. We've done something wrong toward our neighbor. We've been, in, we've been irreverent toward God in some way or another. And so if we're, if we're going to try to hang our hat on, well, here's the law of God, and let me see how I measure up to it, we're not going to measure up. And so Paul sums it up this way in Romans, the third chapter. And now I'm leery of calling out a passage, and, and before I get there, I missed it so bad with Psalm 130. Um, But Romans, the third chapter and verse 20, because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What the law really does, it puts a spotlight on the things we've done wrong. So we're not righteous, but we have to be righteous to be in fellowship with God, right? That's right. Good point along with that. Psalm, Psalm 14, uh, I will venture out on that one. Uh, it's quoted for us there in Romans 3 while you're right there. Uh, Romans 3 and verse 10, for there is mm-hmm. righteous, no, not one. Mm-hmm. Makes it abundantly clear. Uh, none of us can stand before God, as you said. So in the Old Testament, there was this principle where God would say, uh, I will be your God and you shall be my people. I am holy. You shall be holy. And the idea is, if God is going to have a people, he is a holy, a righteous God. His people have to be the same. God 
cannot tolerate sin, cannot condone sin, cannot um, just kind of look the other way indefinitely in regard to sin. He has to, by his very nature, um, hold us accountable for our sin or hold somebody accountable that our sin has to be punished. So the problem that I have and that everyone has is uh, once I've sinned, I have no way to make myself righteous. I have no way to undo the thing that I've done wrong. I, I can say I'm sorry, but anybody who's been married knows that once you've messed up, saying you're sorry doesn't undo what you did wrong. It, it may go a long way toward mending fences, but it doesn't undo what you did wrong. I think that, that's a very critical point in any relationship. Uh, you can't unsay something. You can't undo something that's been done. Uh, yeah, you can apologize. You can feel bad. You can express sorrow. But the deed has already been done. And, and that's where we are before God. So if God is looking for me to be righteous, not just for me to say I'm sorry, but for me to be righteous, it would seem that, that I'm hopeless. Romans, the seventh chapter, paints a picture of a man who would like to be righteous, and he ends up in frustration. So here's a man um, <clears throat> who wants to do what is right. I think that's evident when we look down at verse uh, 15, that which I do, I know not, for not what I would, that do I practice. What I hate, that I do. It's not, this is not a man who just, who just, who's just um, rolling around in the muck and enjoying it. This is a man who wants to be righteous, but he ends up doing the very thing that he hates. And then verse 16, he says, if what I would not, that I do, I consent unto the law that it is good. This is a man who knows the law of God is good, and he aspires to it, and yet he finds himself doing that which is wrong. And so he says in verse 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see a different law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity under the law of sin, which is in my members. That, that idea of captivity emphasizes the fact that I, I'm really imprisoned by my sin. I can't escape it. And so he cries out in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me out of the body of this death? So here I am in need of being righteous. I can't do that. Uh, I can't make myself righteous, but there is a way for me to be righteous, right? We need to put our trust in the Lord. We need to put our faith in God. Well, can he make us righteous? Absolutely. And I mean, isn't this the idea? Someone straightened me out on this and just helped me understand. Back in Romans 4, this is kind of a similar idea that Paul talks about uh, by talking about the Jews' father Abraham. And uh, verse 9, is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was when he was uncircumcised. Yeah. Uh, going down a little ways in chapter four, uh, verse 20, yet without, uh, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, that idea. straighten me out and tell me how this all plays into this. Oh, no, you, you're exactly right. That, and I like that translation using the word credited. He was credited with righteousness. You know, sometimes you have somebody credit something to your uh, charge account or your bank account 
for some reason. Um, now, it may be that, that you would do it, but it may be that some business does you a favor and they say, hey, listen, uh, we're going to credit your account because we feel like, you know, we didn't really um, provide you the service that we would have liked to have done or something. And uh, so that's the idea here. God credits Abraham with righteousness, not because of any shortcoming on God's part, nor because Abraham deserved it. Let's go back to verse two. The question is asked, if Abraham was justified by works, he has whereof to glory, but not toward God. If Abraham was justified by his own deeds, if you just look at Abraham's life and say, wow, uh, that guy is righteous, he would not have needed to give, I use the word credit again, a little different here. He would not have needed to give credit to God. He could have boasted in himself. He could have gloried in himself. And so then Paul asked the question in verse three, well, what does the scripture say? And it quotes Genesis 15, six, Abraham believed God or trusted in God. And it was, this translation says reckoned, yours says credited to him for righteousness. So God credited Abraham with righteousness. Does God credit us with righteousness? Well, I mean, if, if you keep reading in verse 23 of chapter four, now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for ours also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Okay, so it brings Jesus into the picture. So what does Jesus have to do with our being credited with righteousness? Again, it goes back to we couldn't do it on our own. Our our sins are what made us unholy and unclean, unjustified in the eyes of God. But Jesus' life was so perfect, he took our place. His righteousness is what makes us whole. Okay, explain maybe, maybe, that. Maybe um, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yeah. I was afraid you weren't going to get that out because your, your connection was iffy there for a minute. It became a little garbled, but the, the key phrase there, uh, he was made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he was made to be sin. What does that mean? How is that relevant? What, what, why would Jesus need to be made to be sin? Chase just said he was flawless. He was perfect. And then God makes him to be sin. What's going on here? I think of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, which makes really a similar point to what you just quoted in 2 Corinthians 5. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, a passage heavily steeped in the themes of Isaiah 53 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who his own self bear our sins in his body upon the tree. The tree is the cross. And it says that we having died unto sins, an idea we'll come back to in a minute, might live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed or by whose wounds you were healed. So here's an idea. Jesus is wounded. He, is, he, suffers, he suffers this torture and somehow that heals us. Well, it's because he is bearing our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross. And so when he is suffering, when he's being tortured on the cross, that's our sin in his body being punished. And so if our sin has been punished, then, then God's righteousness has been, uh, has, has, well, I can't think of the word I want. 
God's righteousness has been satisfied. God's justice has been satisfied. Righteousness, justice. And so then he can credit us with righteousness because now whatever sins we've, we've committed, they're, they're paid for, they're atoned for. Yeah, so righteousness is discussed. Um, do we want to move to the next one? or we're, No, let's, let's develop this just a little bit more. Paul talks about his righteousness in Philippians chapter 3, for example, right? Philippians righteousness. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Philippians chapter 3, verse um, 9. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now you describe Felix, uh, the man to whom Paul is speaking and presenting these thoughts, and you described him as kind of a corrupt individual. Yes. Do you reckon he had an awareness that he was not the most honest, upright individual that walked the face of the earth? It, it, it's, hard, it's hard to think that he was doing those things being naive. So, you know, sometimes people think, well, that's, that's just the way it is. That's the way you do business. But, but they know, they know that that's not considered. That's why somebody who does those things will try to hide it. That's why you mentioned those who are further away from Rome and maybe uh, had less supervision uh, could get away with those things. It's a matter of getting away with it because, you know, it's not really the upstanding thing to do, but if you're concerned more about satisfying your own, satisfying your own greed, then you do it, but you still try to keep it quiet as necessary. So here's this man who is not a particularly righteous man, and he's hearing about this need to be righteous before God, and he'd have to say, if he's honest with himself, well, you know, I'm not a righteous man. Um, none of us are, but this man certainly should be able to recognize I'm not a righteous man. And yet God requires righteousness. And so Paul presents this case of you can be righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. His death can take away your sin so that you can say, right, I'm righteous. And, and if Paul had stopped right there, Felix could go, great, Jesus can have all my sins. And he'd go on living the way that he wanted to live. But what's the next thing in Paul's summary? Self-control. Self-control, yeah. So when we, <clears throat> when, when we to, in order to be righteous, I have to be connected with the death. My sins have to be connected with the death that pays for my, that is the punishment for my sins. You quoted 2 Corinthians 5, Joe. Uh, he was made to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I mentioned 1 Peter 2, 24. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. But not everybody benefits from Jesus' death. And apparently not everybody gets connected with Jesus' death so that their sins are atoned for in his death. And what, what the Bible describes as the point at which we become connected with Jesus' death is when we're buried with Christ through baptism and we're baptized into his death. That's the way Paul says it in Romans, the sixth chapter. And verse Two, or are ye ignorant that all we who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So it's at that point we become connected with his death. Our sins are atoned for in the death of Jesus Christ. So we die with Christ. But now we talk about self-control, and we talk about another aspect of dying with Christ. First Peter 2, verse 24, uh, talked about him bearing our sins in his body on the tree. Uh, that we might, let's, I'm going to have to turn there and so that I get it quoted right. 
they're going the wrong way. In First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, uh, he's going to say, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we having died unto sins. So let's talk about self-control in connection with dying unto sins a little bit. Well, I mean, isn't that part of, of wanting to come to God and, and recognize my way doesn't work anymore. Um, I need to submit to God's way. I need to be made righteous in his eyes by the sacrifice of Jesus. And so we shouldn't be shocked when we make that decision to, to give our lives to Christ and baptism that we're going to have to have self-control now. We're saying I was out of control and God can control me now. And so I'm going to have to watch out for the way that I behave and I'm going to have to change the way that I used to do things or say things. And so it's really not all that surprising that self-control is a necessary next step from righteousness. Yeah, Paul makes the case in, back in Romans 6 where he talks about being baptized into Christ's death. His, it's interesting, I often quote that passage to demonstrate baptism is the point at which we are saved. But that's really not the point Paul is making there. Paul is alluding to that as a known fact. But the, Paul, the point Paul is really making is, look, if you were baptized into Christ's death, if you died with Christ, then you live in Christ, and you can't go on living your old way of life. Jesus died and was raised to new life. You need to have died to your old way of life and be raised to a new life, and the character of that new life is self-control. You don't just do whatever you want to do. We'll come down to Romans chapter 6 and verse uh, 12. Let not sin therefore reign. Who, who, what does that word reign bring to mind? The king, be, be king, have dominion. Yeah, be king, have dominion, rule. Don't let sin rule in your life, in your mortal body, that you should do what? Obey the lust thereof, obey the desires. See, if you died with Christ, then sin can no longer be your king, or as he says, your desires. The desires, the lust of your mortal body can no longer be your king, that you should obey the desires thereof. You know what that is? When I choose not to just do what I want to do, you know what that is? When I live a life where my passions, my, my desires don't control me, you know what that's called? Self-control. Self-control. Thank you. Self- I'm sorry. I was looking at another passage. That's all I right. I didn't a question. <laughs> This is, so this is the message now. Paul is not just saying to Felix, look, just say a prayer, accept Jesus as your personal Savior, and then you're saved. No, he's saying you can have a righteousness of God in Christ, but you're going to have to die to your own desires. You're going to have to die to letting your desires rule you. And that would have been a contrast with the way of life known to Felix and Drusilla. Right, Joe? That's exactly right. Think about how uh, how this would have impacted their ears. Uh, Drusilla had been married before uh, to a king in Amicia, uh, was Syria. Think of Syria now. Um, and uh, Felix had wooed her away from her husband and uh, married her, um, much like you might think about the story of Herod and Herodias with John the Baptist. Now instead of John the Baptist preaching to Herod and Herodias saying that they have no right to be together, Paul is now preaching to them about self-control, something that they clearly have not been practicing together. Uh, All of us are guilty at one point or another, and many of us on far too many points 
of not having self-control in one area or another, but maybe just to put ourselves in their sandals for a moment and, and to think about, man, he's, he's really saying exactly what we need to be hearing. Uh, you know, they may not have appreciated that, but, but this message was directed toward them. This wasn't a, this was not a generic sermon that he was preaching. <laughs> so how old was Drusilla when Felix takes her from, in fact, uh, didn't he hire a sorcerer, get some sorcerer to convince her to divorce her previous husband? Yeah, yeah. He, he went to great lengths to try to win her over uh, having a sorcerer magician come in and, and it did all kinds of things to, to, to get her to, to come to be with him. She was about 16, if I, uh, I think that Josephus tells us, when they got married. Um, years old. And uh, so now uh, I think somebody had said 20 or so. 16 years old. And, um, and, uh, and uh, was she, was she cute? Was she pretty? Uh, historians tell us that she was extremely beautiful. So here's a man who sees a 16 year old girl who is married to somebody else. And he does everything he can to get her to leave that man and marry him does this sound like a man who's characterized by self-control? No. This is a man who wants what he wants, and he's going to get what he wants to get. So, all right, Paul preaches to him righteousness. You need to be righteous before God, and he wasn't. But he could be, as, as, as many things as he had done that were wrong. All of that could have been atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus but it was going to require his dying with Christ, being buried with Christ into Christ's death through baptism, and, and in that matter, in that manner, demonstrating his willingness to put to death his old way of life and begin a new life of doing the will of God, not his own will. Peter yeah. over before. Yeah, Chase. And I, just on that self-control point, my mind just kept racing to 1 Corinthians 9 that we've discussed in podcasts before. Paul says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, I've, I've taught and, and been able to talk with many people about the gospel. And you quickly realize there are some who are just there to hear the gospel message. And it's almost like they just want it on a surface level. But then once they realize the impact of it, man, this is actually going to require some sacrifice, some self-control on my part. I'm going to have to make my body my slave. That's when they're done. And so I, I think that this is a really interesting next step that, that Paul introduces to, to Felix. Um, it's more than just righteousness. There's something that's going to need to be done by you now. That's going to make you uncomfortable. It's going to be hard and it's going to be tough. And so when we, when we bring the gospel message to other people, this is not something we can hide. Uh, we can't stop short of righteousness. We need to go as far as self-control and say, this is going to cost you something. And if you want to win the prize, you're going to have to work for it. Exactly. Exactly right. So often in evangelical world today, it's just a very superficial message. Just just say a little prayer, except Jesus is your personal savior and you're saved. There's no demand for bringing your life into submission to the will of God. Uh, Chase, if you could keep an eye, check our comments on our Facebook page. I, I have trouble doing two things at once, and I just peeked over. It looked like maybe we've got some comments over there. 
but uh, so so we've talked we've talked about the idea of righteousness, the idea of self control. But there's a third thing that comes into this little summary of what Paul has to say to Felix, and it's judgments come. So what do you suppose Paul might have said to Felix about judgments come? Well, this three-point sermon of Paul's, I mean, it, it naturally leads to that, right? Uh, if you don't exercise self-control, there is a consequence to that. I'm going to turn over to Revelation 21. And um, in Revelation 21, there's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a stark passage. It, it's, it's not one that is necessarily most pleasing to the ears. But uh, here's what it says. Re- Revelation 21, verse 8. The fearful, unbelieving, and un- abom- abominable, and murderers, and fornicators, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part shall be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Uh, is God a God of love? Yes, absolutely. Is God a God of justice? Amen. Yes. And so often people like to focus on the fact that God is a God of love and he is, but he is also a God of justice and he must punish sin. And he's given us a choice. We can have our sin punished in Jesus or we can take the punishment for our sins. And what I've just read there in revelation 21 and verse eight, uh, having their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, it's a metaphorical description, but it's a description of the fate of the unrighteous. Um, and so when I think about that, I have to realize, yes, God is a God of love, and he's demonstrated his love for me and making it possible for me to be righteous in his eyes. But I've got a choice to make. And if my choice is I want to do my own will, I'm not going to be righteous in his eyes, and I'm going to take the punishment for my sin. Okay. Several passages that come to mind in connection with this idea of judgment to come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and uh, verse uh, 10. We must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And, And really the teaching of the Apostle Paul and throughout the Bible is, we don't want to receive the things done, all of the things done in our body. Uh, we want to be credited with righteousness, even though at times we did what was unrighteous. And in Christ, God's made that possible. But if those sins are still on my record, if they're not atoned for in the death of Christ, then God is going to justly punish those sins. And I think a lot of us have a hard time understanding that we've done anything bad enough to be worthy of condemnation, of death, of eternal death. But we all know the story of Adam and Eve. And we think about what Eve did that was wrong. And basically, you can boil it down to she ate some fruit she wasn't supposed to eat. And whatever we've done wrong, most of us can easily think of a number of things we've done that were worse than that. And the consequence for Eve was Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden and a flame, a cherubim, cherubim, a cherubim, cherubim with a flaming sword put there uh, so that they couldn't go back. In other words, that sin was enough to separate them from God. 
why was that sin so bad? Why was it so bad that she ate some fruit she wasn't supposed to eat? It's not the action that was that took place that made it bad. It's the disobedience to, to God. It doesn't matter uh, what the thing is. It's rebellion against God. That's right. Rebellion. And, and rebellion that includes not only rebelling against God, but exalting my own desires as greater than God. God had provided everything for them. God had created this wonderful paradise. He was providing their needs, taking care of them. You would think that they would say, wow, this God's looking out for us. Let's do what he says. But she thought, wait, I think that looks good for food. And it's pretty in my eyes. And it'll make me somebody. It'll make me wise. And that's, that's a paraphrase of what she was thinking according to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. That's all about her, her desires. And so her desires become her God. And so when she exalted her own desires above God, that's abominable. We may not think eating some fruit I'm not supposed to eat is so bad, but that's what it was about. And when you and I sin, that's what it's about. And so it is, it is egregious. And the consequence for Eve and Adam was that they were driven out of the garden and, and you see what became of the world as a result. So we might need to realize, yes, the judgment to come is one to which I will be subjected, even if I don't think what I've done is the worst thing in the world. What I've done wrong is rebellion against God. And God cannot tolerate that. And God cannot make that a part of his eternal abode and his people, the abode of his people for all eternity. And so I'll be condemned unless my sins are atoned for in Christ. Other thoughts about judgment to come? I was thinking about, uh, see if I can find the passage here quick enough. Um, Second Thessalonians, right? Yep. Uh, thinking about the, the judgment, you have the language there of uh, in Second Thessalonians 1. Um, Verse 6, since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Uh, He talks about, in verse 8, flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have that sort of consequence of uh, actions taken, uh, rebellion, as we just talked about. But also in the middle of that, in verse 7, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. One of the things we have to include in discussions of the judgment scene is not just those that are on the left, Matthew 25, that are going to be told, depart from me, but also those that are on the right that are going to be welcomed in. Um, you know, I think that that's important for everybody to understand is whatever you've done wrong, it's likely worse than eating a piece of fruit, as you said. Um, uh, but whatever you've done wrong, you can come to Christ and be cleansed through his blood and have a relationship so that you don't need to fear that judgment time. And then as to the judgment, go on and get verse nine. I, I already flipped away from it. Sorry. I've got it. So to those who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse nine, who shall suffer punishment, even eternal destruction from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he shall be, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. So there's a judgment day coming a day when the Lord is going to return and, and time is going to come to an end and a judgment takes place and the righteous will live in timeless eternity with the Lord. 
having been made righteous through the blood of Christ and those who rejected that face eternal destruction. Yeah, Chase. We got a comment from Jorge, First uh, John two fifteen through seventeen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Is what what he commented. Yeah, I appreciate that reference from uh, Jorge, or as I think people call him George in Belize. Um, and, uh, I appreciate that because it is so parallel to the description of Eve's thinking in Genesis three. Uh, when you look at the, what John says, um, uh, sorry, Chase, you would have no idea. It is Jorge, but I think he actually gets called George. Belize is an English speaking country. That's their, their first language is English there. Um, and he probably gets called both. But uh, when, you, when you think about the, the statement in 1 John, uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, or you could say the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eye, the pride of life. Then you think of Eve's looking at the fruit and seeing that, or the, tree, the fruit on the tree and seeing it was good for food. That's the desire of the flesh. It, she saw it was a delight to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. And she was told it would make her like God knowing good and evil. And she wanted that, even though she misunderstood that it's not a, she thought it's a good thing to, to have the knowledge of good and evil. No, God was trying to spare them that. But she was motivated by her ego, her pride, and her just, uh, it was pretty, and her desire of the flesh. And then John says, all that is of the world is summed up in those things. And so whenever we sin, if we think about it, we can probably boil it down to one or more of those things is behind our sin. So thank you for that comment. Um, go ahead. One, one, one other thought there, uh, Jeff, and just trying to, you know, put ourselves in that kind of trial scene of Acts 24. Uh, Teresa's husband mentions the irony of an accused man taking, uh, th- talking to one standing in judgment that he will be judged. Isn't that interesting here? <laughs> Paul is the prisoner an accused prisoner standing before his judge and saying judgment to come. Pretty powerful image, isn't it? Yeah. 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 All right. So what was Felix's response to all of this? Go away now for uh, when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Yeah. But before that, he was terrified. He was afraid. I'm sorry. He was afraid and answer. Yeah. But both of those are important to notice, but first of all, he was terrified but he didn't do what he needed to do about it. <sighs> if, if, you're, yeah. if you believed that there was no such thing as coronavirus, you had no possibility of getting coronavirus, uh, would you be terrified of it? Not at all. Obviously, there's something in the back of his mind working. He, somehow he's been touched and he's, he, he is terrified by the prospect of, being, of facing the judgment that Paul has laid out before him. But he's more interested in what he wants. And so the second part of his response, Paul, I mean, Joe. Yeah, uh, go away. Uh, when it's convenient, then I'll call for you again. But he kept calling for him. Why? Hoping to Hoping get, some uh, money. get some money, yeah. So he was terrified by the message 
but he's more interested in the prospect of getting a bride. You know, you know what that tells me is this man was, he might've been convinced about the righteousness that God can provide. And he might've been convinced about the judgment to come, but he was too fixed on his lifestyle. Yep. And he was too fixed on what he was going to have to give up for the sake of being righteous before That's God. Right. And right. he, he feared man more than he feared the Lord. This is the, you know, that, that's the sadness of, of far too many people today. None of us, certainly not the three of us, stand before God righteous in and of ourselves. We dealt with that clearly, I think. Uh, but many people today, they, they have this grasp of, of what's going to happen, and they live in fear. They, they don't, they're afraid to die. I, I don't want to die from the virus, but I'm not afraid to die. Yeah. Because of the blood of Christ, not because of my own righteousness, but because of the blood of Christ, but to live in that fear, we can have that removed from us. So that's the message of Paul to Felix, and that's the message of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all of us. Thank you for listening today. I hope that was helpful to you. Uh, for those of you who are looking for a way to have a Bible study with your neighbors, you might take those three points and sit down and, and develop those. Thank you all, and Lord willing, we'll see you next week.